Welcome to the 2014 Shepherds Conference, The Great Commission as a Theological Endeavor, Paul Washer. Let's begin in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. We come before you knowing that you know us, the deepest part of our heart and mind. You judge all things. And therefore, Lord, we thank you for grace. We thank you for the finished work of Christ on our behalf that strengthens us to stand before you when nothing else could do so. We thank you for your promises that encourage us. Lord, help us today. So many words and so, so many deeds. But Lord, we would ask that your spirit would move among us, that he would open up our hearts and minds to a greater reality of the task that has been set before us, that we would realize that we are some of the most privileged of all men who've ever walked this planet. Such a day to live in, Lord. So many open doors. Lord, work in us that we not have tight spirits and narrow minds and dull hearts, but that we be bold for you in your strength, your wisdom, that we serve our generation, and then that we be forgotten, Lord. All glory and honor and praise be unto your Son, now in this place and forevermore and everywhere, Lord. To him be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to point out four things from our text, and um, I'm striving to stick very close to my notes because there are some things that I definitely want to say. But there's four things in particular that we're going to look at. First of all, in this text, we see a reflection of our weakness. Then we see a declaration of Christ's absolute authority and power. And then we see the preeminent task of the church set before us. And then if that is too much, if that overwhelms us, then we have the promise of his presence and power. And for any man that's ever gone out taking the Great Commission seriously, this last promise is the thing that holds us. It's the thing that strengthens us and makes us go on. Now, let's look first of all at a reflection of our weakness. When we look at this text, let's read again verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. Here we do not see great men of faith. What do we see? We see men like us. A mixture 
of faith and obedience, doubt and uncertainty. The word that is used here for doubt is distasso, meaning a double standing, an uncertainty, a hesitancy about them. And it's the same word that is used to describe Peter when he is commanded by Christ to come out of the boat to walk upon the raging sea. Doubt. Now, I want to be fair at this moment to these men. I want to be fair to them. We shouldn't just attribute this doubt to their weakness, but we should also attribute this doubt to the magnitude of what they are being called to believe and to do. Let's look for a moment at the Sea of Galilee. Let's look for a moment at Peter being called to walk out on that sea. That was nothing compared to what they're being called to do at this very moment. And what is that? To walk out into the sea of humanity, a radically depraved humanity. They are being sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves. They are being called to cast down every earthly power and authority and to do so by faith in the word of a carpenter and by the proclamation of the most scandalous message that the world has ever known. So we can see, at least, that there is something of a reason for their doubt. Now, I want you to see some things. They were men like us. They were men like us. One of the greatest things I have ever learned from Scripture with regarding the apostles is that they were like us. But we see here that they were, they were or would be transformed. They would be changed. They would become something more than mere men. And how would that happen? By grasping the reality of the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. And, as we will see in the book of Acts, by the power, the powerful life and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we talk about missions and we talk about all the things that must be done, let me put before you three things that are absolute essentials in missions. First of all, we need men who are constantly growing in their knowledge of the person and work of Christ, who He truly is and what He has truly done. What else do we need? Men will, who will renounce once and for all every fleshly means of planting churches and doing missions. And then men who are constantly, unceasingly crying out, for greater and greater manifestations of the life and power of the Holy Spirit in their life. Gentlemen, listen to me. Do not allow false prophets to rob you of your inheritance. Just because there are so many wrong men teaching so many wrong things about the Holy Spirit, don't overreact against them and turn your trinity into something less. We cannot do the Great Commission. Do you understand me? We cannot do the Great Commission. 
apart from the power, the teaching, the righteousness, the holiness, the life of the Holy Spirit, we cannot. Now, here we see in verse 18, we've talked about a reflection of our weakness. Now we're going to look at a declaration of his power. Verse 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus knows their weakness and Jesus goes out to meet them. How many times in my 30 years, how many times in your ministry has this been true? He knew your weakness at that moment, but he did not leave you. He went out to meet you. He came for you. What a blessed Savior. What a broad-shouldered God we have. He came out to meet you. He knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. There's never been a great man of God, never will be. Only tiny, little, faithless men of a great and a merciful God. He went out to meet them. He knows our frame. He knows yours. Some young person comes to me and says, but the Great Commission is so great and I'm so weak. My response is, yes. Yes. But as Augustine said, Christ does not call men who are worthy. Christ makes men worthy by virtue of the call. And here we can see, what does Christ do? He comes out and he counters their doubt and uncertainty. And how does he do that? With a declaration of his absolute authority. Absolute authority over what? Over everything without limitation, jurisdiction, or exception. His power. I want to quote from David Brown, a used-to-be well-known Scottish theologian and exegete. And he said, what must have been the feelings? What must have been the feelings that were awakened in these men by this commission? Lord, we go out and conquer the world for thee who have scarcely conquered our own misgivings. Lord, fishermen of Galilee, without letters, without means, without influence, even over the humblest creature, nay, Lord, mock us not. And the Lord responds, I mock you not, for all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Go ye therefore. John Trapp, go ye, Jesus said. In this my strength is Gideon against the Midianites. And though ye be but a barley cake, coarse and contemptible, yet ye shall overthrow the tents of this world. Yea, ye shall overthrow even the stronghold of Satan. And though you have but a lamp and a pitcher in your hand, yet you will attain to great matters. You see, our strength, our everything... None of it is found in us. It is all found in him. A wonderful illustration of Christ's authority in Genesis chapter 41, verse 44. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, 
No one shall raise his hand or foot in all of Egypt. The exalted, resurrected, exalted Christ stands before the Father and all authority is given to him in heaven and on earth. It is though he said to him, without your permission, son, no one will raise his hand or his foot in all the cosmos. Even the hand that was raised to throw the first stone at Stephen was under the sovereign jurisdiction of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the kind of stuff that will make a very weak man very, very strong. What does this kind of authority mean for our missionary endeavors? It means this. He who goes to and fro, weeping, carrying his bag of seed, will come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. What does it mean, this authority? Is it just some theological speculation, something to be talked about in a seminary? Absolutely not. It is essential for everything we do in world missions. What does his authority mean? I'll tell you what it means. There shall be a great multitude which no one can count standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They will be clothed in white robes and each one will have in his hand a palm branch and they will cry out with a great and unified voice, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what it means. We will win because he has won. What an open door lies before us and what strength is given us in his name, in his name. Let's go on. Now, most involved in missions, now we're going to turn this around. Most involved in missions would give a hearty amen to absolutely everything I have said thus far. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has authority and power. Here's what we must understand. We must understand the implications of this, and oftentimes the church does not understand the implications of the sovereignty of Christ. Now listen to me. If we are to go out in his authority, then we must go out under his authority. Now what does that mean? Everything that we do in missions and church planting Everything that we believe, everything that we practice, and all our so-called strategies and methodologies, they must be warranted by the Scriptures, or we have no authority at all. Our authority comes from our conformity to what this mighty Lord has commanded and I want to submit to you something very, very important. I believe that this is the Achilles heel of modern evangelical missions. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Furthermore, let me say this. Our mission methodology, our church planting strategy is not, is not, is not to be the invention of the anthropologist the sociologists are the expert in leading cultural trends. Then from where should our strategy and our methodology come? It should come from the scriptures, drawn out of the scriptures by the exegete, the theologian, and the church historian. 
but they have all been but removed from modern evangelical missions. And that, as I've said, is our Achilles heel. Now, remember what Moses heard from God. He said this, Moses, see that you make everything in the tabernacle according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, if he can say that about the tabernacle, how much more? The greatest of all causes. See to it that you do this great commission according to the pattern that has been shown all of us in the Holy Scriptures. Now, God has given the church and her ministers the Scriptures so that we might be equipped, not for some good works, not for certain good works, but for every necessary work of the kingdom. What do we need? The scriptures. Also, God has given the scriptures to the church and to her ministers so that we might know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. Let me share something with you very quickly and, and hold your stones before you throw them. Just listen. The Reformation, the Puritans, Spurgeon, Calvin, Jones, all of them, they, they weren't, the whole thing wasn't wrapped up in Calvinism. Let me tell you what it was wrapped up in. The sufficiency of Scripture. And so... Yes, part of that is a right understanding of soteriology, but here's what you've got to see. All over America, I'm seeing guys that are supposedly going back to the truth, but they're only doing it with regard to soteriology. If I look at their church planning and their way of doing missions, it looks just like every other evangelical. It's not just reforming your soteriology. But the Puritan genius was this. They sought to take every aspect of life and ministry and submit it to a book. The Scriptures. And that's what we must do. But especially you young men, listen to me. There's this idea of you're going to take the Puritans and you're going to take the Reformers and then you're going to dress it all up in some cultural thing that other people today will appreciate. No! You don't understand. We must cling to what is written and we must do our church planting, our church life, our missions, everything, our families according to what is written and not what is right in our own eyes. Let me say this. It matters. Someone comes to me and they say, Brother Paul, I, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I go, I don't. So what? Good for you. Because the inerrancy of Scripture means nothing unless you also practice the sufficiency of Scripture. They are twin sisters. It is a deformed coin that has only one side. Inerrancy, you can hold on to that without being changed. But then to take that doctrine of inerrancy and move on to sufficiency, now that's a whole another ball game, isn't it? What must we do? We must lay aside... If we're going to do the Great Commission, 
If we're going to plant churches, what must we do? We must lay aside every fleshly strategy and methodology. And what must we do? We must go into the scriptures. And what must we do? Follow the pattern that is given to us there. The more we as a people hold on to the works and the strategies and the methodologies of the flesh, the less that we will see God. What must we do? We must rip from us like a poison, like a plague, like a scab. We must rip from us Saul's armor, and we must go out and pick up the smooth stones of the gospel that have for too long have been neglected, and that is the only way we are ever going to go out and slay this Goliath called world missions. It's the only way. The only way. The only way. Now, I want us to look at the communication of the church's preeminent task. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. First, I want you to notice that in the title, I said this is the church's preeminent task. I did not say it was the church's preeminent command. The church's preeminent command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Only men who through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the renewal of their mind in the Scriptures, only these kind of men can have a love for God that propels them to do great things in God's name. The Great Commission is a labor of love. We love God and therefore what? We desire that the knowledge of the glory of God be upon this earth like the waters that cover the sea, that the name of God be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. We love Christ and therefore we desire that the Lamb receive the full reward of His suffering. We love men, all kinds of men. And if you don't love men, then you need to get out of the ministry. We love men and we cannot tolerate their suffering. And we want to see God glorified in their salvation. It's a labor of love. He says, therefore, again, just bringing us back to the reality. And what is that reality? We have no inherent authority. That we must remain under His. We must. Constantly, daily. Not only in our public life or our pulpit ministry, but we must remain under His authority in our private life. He owns you. He bought you. You are not your own. So take that and drive it like a stake straight through the heart of the flesh. You're His. And the matter must be settled. Young men, if you have not settled that matter before you graduate from here, all the degrees in the world will not help you. We're His. And we go out in His name because we love Him. And we love Him because He loved us. 
Listen to me, my dear friend. When you go out and preach on that street and those people turn on you in about five minutes and they grab your little pulpit and your little megaphone and all your tracts and Bibles and they pick you up and they throw you out in this, off the plaza and back into the street, it's going to take a lot more than simple love for people to have you pick up all your stuff and march right back in that plaza again and preach. It's going to take the love of Christ manifested in your life, a reality of what he has done for you. Pastor, though your suffering might not be that dramatic, it is oftentimes more intense. And to keep you going, serving, blessing, unknown and unnoticed and unappreciated by men, it's going to take this standard, this comprehension of the reality of Christ. Let's go on. He says, make disciples. The phrase make disciples translated from the Greek word mathetuo, which has the prominent idea here is instruction. It's in teaching. It's in making disciples by means of communicating truth. Now, in Christ's own words, what is a disciple? It is someone who is like his master. So the end of church planting and the end of the Great Commission is not recording decisions or counting converts. But what is it? It is taking the gospel of Jesus Christ and boldly proclaiming it to the lost. And when those lost are soundly converted, then we enter into a lifelong labor with the full counsel of God's word for their sanctification. That's what it is. That is what it is. That's what we're called to do. And it's hard, men. You will leave this conference, this glorious, wonderful conference, Necessary conference, edifying conference, but the reality is you will go home and it will be tough. I will leave this conference and I will go home and it will be tough. The work of making disciples is just hard work. But I would take one sound disciple over 10,000 so-called converts that evangelicalism is producing today. Now, this idea of making disciples is further clarified by Paul in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. The things, the things that I have taught you, that I have shared with you, that I have communicated to you, that I have exemplified before you, these things, entrust these to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. You know, this text is so often used out of context, it's unbelievable. It is used to talk about how the moment someone's converted, they need to go and disciple someone else who's been converted more recently. And yes, discipleship and that type of discipleship has its place, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's telling Timothy, raise up leaders. Raise up men of God. Raise up men who qualify to be elders and biblical deacons. Isn't it amazing that Jesus never said, the harvest is great, but the money is few. <laughs> Everybody always whining about money. Money's not the problem. Men of integrity, biblical men, Men who have lashed them down, themselves down to Scripture. Now that's the rarity. That's the gem. And that's what you're to be producing. 
And although these kinds of men are being produced here and other good seminaries that the Lord has raised up, never forget, men, it is the primary task of the church, of you men, to do that work. Let's go on. He says this is to be done in all nations. Now, let me just say this. If you've had a measure of success in the ministry, and so you're just content, it shows you have a very, very small, shriveled heart. There is a sense in which the man of God who's been obedient, regardless of so-called success, that man ought to be able to lay his head at bed at night and sleep. And he also ought to be able to be called home with great joy on the day Christ calls him home. But we should not be content just because there's some little measure of success in our little fishbowl. We should not be content until the name of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to every person of our generation, until his flag flies on every hill, mountain, and valley, until his name is glorified in every inch of this planet. Then we can be content. But until then, no. No. Never. Never. All nations. And here's the thing, men. There's never been a time in the history of the world, there's never been a time where a door, an effectual door, has been so opened. And I'm not the prophet or the son of a prophet, but studying church history and human history, secular history, I would tell you this, a shadow is growing in the West. And I don't know how long that you and I We'll have this privilege to go out to all the nations. It could be very soon we're running for our lives. So while it is day, let us work, for night comes when no man labors. He says, go. Go. I used to write all the time in the back of our magazine, just what part of go do you not understand? <laughs> and then I realized that with regard to the evangelical community, most of it they don't understand. Go. Now, you all know that that's not the primary command. The command is to make disciples. And Craig Blomberg, in his commentary on Matthew, New American Commentary, has a great insight here. He says, this observation that the command is not go, but make disciples, has been emphasized too little and emphasized too much. It's emphasized too much that the emphasis is on making disciples when a church and a minister thinks that they're only called to bloom where they're planted. That you're doing the work because you're doing ministry in your Jerusalem. No, you are not granted that luxury. You must minister in Jerusalem, yes. And you must put your force there, but you cannot forget the nations. Now too much or too little of this has been made, too much emphasis placed on go and not enough on making disciples, when, and this is the great sin of evangelicalism today, when we frantically give in to blatant pragmatism, when we look at the need of the world and that pushes us to act in a way that is not biblical, primarily by sending people into the mission field who should not be on the mission field, who do not meet the requirements set forth in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. And you say, wait, Brother Paul, that's for elders. No, you wait. <laughs> Listen to me. 
What Paul is setting forth, and you need to understand this, what, this will be good for the men of your church. What Paul is setting forth is this. He is describing a mature man. And then he's saying an elder and a deacon must be a mature man. They must be spiritually mature men. And that goes for all of us. You can't just apply that to the minister. It goes to every man must be a mature man. But if that mature man desires, aspires to be an overseer, then glory to God. All of us should reach that level. We can't keep sending teenagers that don't even understand the word propitiation to the mission field. We must send qualified men to the mission field. This is absolutely an absolute necessity. Another way in which we make too little of this observation by emphasizing go too much is when we succumb to the carnal strategies that are being put, beforth men, put, bef put before men today in missions with regard to how to do missions and how to plant churches. These strategies are absurd. These strategies are made by little boys who know nothing of the power of God know nothing about intercessory prayer and do not believe in the power of proclamation. We need to lay aside these strategies once and for all and use what the scriptures give us to use. Now, the missionary enterprise is actually quite simple. You can divide it up into two ministries. You are either called to go or you are called to send those who are going. Either way, the same devotion is required. William Carey told those men, I will go down in the mine that is India, but you must hold the rope. So missions is either you go down the rope into the mine or you hold the rope for those who go down. Either way, there will be scars on your hands and exhaustion on your faces. Where's your scars? Where are the scars of your church? Where is the exhaustion? Where is the labor? Pastors can be the greatest catalyst to involving people, bringing people to sacrifice for missions. Our pastors can be the greatest hindrance. Church is looking at you. Are you concerned for the Indonesian without the gospel? Are you concerned for countless Good men genuinely converted, trying to labor in some jungle somewhere, but do not have a clue how to interpret the scriptures because they've not had the privileges you have possessed. You must involve your people in missions. You must go or you must send. Now, another thing I'd like to say is we live in an age of media, of cyberspace, of computers, internet technology, and I praise God for that because we're able to send books, literature, and things into closed countries. It's absolutely amazing, but we cannot fulfill the Great Commission online. It must be incarnational missions. When God decided to send the gospel, God became a man and dwelt among us, and now he is calling the church to do the same, to send flesh and blood, to flesh and blood, to preach the gospel. There should be no reason why we have not missionaries all over the world. 
There should never be a reason why a missionary is walking around beggarly trying to find a few books or raise a little money. Where's our faith? Where's our boldness? I embrace fully Westminster Confession, the 1689 London Confession, with regard to its statements regarding the sovereignty of God. So don't label me a heretic when I say what I'm going to say. Sometimes when I'm praying, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? No, I don't hear a voice. But sometimes this thought comes in my head when I go, God, what do you want us to do here? Seems like, well, what can you believe me for? What can you believe me for? How far do you want to take this? Just how big is your God? I think it's years of scripture and years of reading about the patriarchs from which that voice comes. When I look in the Bible, that's always the case. God, what will you do? What can you believe me for? What can you believe me for? I'm so tired of men in all their using sovereignty to hide behind it. Don't ever hide behind the sovereignty of God. It is not a catalyst to make us passive. It is a catalyst to make us fight. Fight. I do not need a light bulb to explode in my study while I'm praying to know that the gospel needs to be preached more in Indonesia. He has said, go into every nation, but go, go properly. Now, also baptizing, and I have to hurry here, baptizing. There's just three things I want to say quickly. First of all, our converts must accept the full, the whole of unique Christian teaching. You say, where do you get that out of baptizing? It says baptizing in the very specific name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The God of the Bible is not the God of the Quran. The God of the Bible is not just like all other gods with a different name. The God of the Bible is not an option among many other religious options. He is the name. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. You see, you and I can end the 2,000-year war between the secular world and the church by just changing an article. Did you know that? Changing an article from an definite article to an indefinite article. All we have to do to be the toast of the secular world is to say that we believe in Jesus that he is a way, a truth, and a life. And brothers, understand me. I'm in the world of missions. This is going on a lot more than what you know. But if we say things like that, we destroy the power of the gospel and we damn our own souls. There's no other name. Another thing about baptizing here, and I want to be very sensitive, but it's true. Our converts must publicly profess Jesus Christ as Lord. You say, and so many missionaries respond to me, but if they do that, they'll suffer. I don't say this lightly, but yes, they will. They will. I'm not saying we should lay aside all wisdom. I'm not saying we should go out and try to be persecuted or that we should demand these things from brothers in persecuted countries. But my brothers, listen to me. Missions and suffering go hand in hand. And much of the missionary strategy being designed today is designed so that missionaries and their converts do not have to suffer. But suffering is a part of it. You need to understand, in many of the most persecuted countries in the world, if you go home and tell everybody you believe in Jesus, they won't have a problem with it. Really. Even in some Muslim countries. 
Just go home and tell them you believe in Jesus. They won't have a problem with it. It's when you identify with Jesus Christ and his church through baptism and renounce all other religions and gods and doctrines. That's when all hell breaks loose. They must identify with Christ publicly. The apostles never sought, the apostles never sought to teach people how to avoid suffering, especially if you read 1 Thessalonians. But they predicted suffering and then sought to prepare people for that suffering. A last thing about baptism that I want to say is this, that we are not called to leave in our wake a bunch of disconnected individual disciples, but we are called to bring those disciples together in a church. Not a Bible study, not a worship group, but a church. And we are to labor until that church has a mature leadership, mature doctrine. It is autonomous and strong and biblical. And another thing, Missionaries have spent the last generation going around this world trying to build culturally sensitive church instead of biblically faithful churches. We should not go over and take Western culture and force it on another culture. We should come to the West and challenge the West and its culture. But when we go into every other culture, we must do the same. The standard is the scriptures. It's the word of God. Now, this is teaching. Primarily the Great Commission, it's didactic. It is a theological endeavor. It is not about sending missionaries. It's about sending the truth through missionaries. So teach them to observe. Teach them to observe. The Great Commission is not, teaching is not just about gnosis. It's about praxis. It's not just about orthodoxy. It's about orthopraxy. And this is very clear in the teachings of Christ when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The two always go hand in hand. To learn from him is to submit to his sovereignty. And then he says, teach them all that I commanded you. Now I want to give you a, I want you to listen. What is the source? From where are we to teach people? What is to be our book, our source of information? He said, teach them everything I commanded you. It is the words of Christ. It is the word of the living God. And I want to give you a quote from Broadus that is, is absolutely phenomenal. Broadus says this, Jesus Christ did not foresee or perceive of a time or a circumstance when his teaching would be antiquated or untrue, inappropriate or unnecessary. Furthermore, our Lord did not perceive of a time when extra revelation would be added. Teach them what I've said. Teach them what I've said. Now, I want to give us some truths to be gleaned, and that's where we'll, we'll come to an end. First of all, missions is not about sending missionaries. It's about sending God's truth through missionaries. But the biblical way to send God's truth is through missionaries. I say it that way because you can have all the missionary activity in the world, which we have more missionary activity today than probably any other time in the world. And yet most of it is smoke and mirrors, dust. And when it all settles, I don't know how much fruit 
will truly remain. Another thing that I want to say is that the missionary must be a man of the word. He must be. The missionary must be an exegete. The missionary must be a theologian. The missionary must be both a proclaimer and a scribe. One of the best illustrations of a missionary, even though to his own people was Ezra, for he set his heart to study the law of God, to practice it, and to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. That's a missionary. A young man came to me years and years ago. Well, he called me by the phone. And years ago, I was in Peru. And he said, I want to come down there, Brother Paul. And I want to work with you. And I said, well, talk to me about your time in the Word. Talk to me about your knowledge, the, your study of the Scriptures. He said, I'm not really, that's not my area. I just want to come down there and give my life away. And I said, well, then talk to me about intercessory prayer. He said, well, that's really not. He goes, Brother Paul, I just want to come down there and give my life away. Now, I said something. I did take the young man under my wing, but this is what I said to him. I said, young man, nobody in Peru needs your life. They need someone who can come here, open up their mouth, and proclaim to them the word of the living God. So much romanticism. Now, the command to make disciples through teaching proves something very important. What? That the Great Commission is, again, I'm going to say it again, a theological, doctrinal endeavor. But if we look at the great majority of missionary work in the world today, we see that doctrine, although at one time was the queen of all sciences, that doctrine does not have a high priority. And because of that, Mission work today, in many cases, has become a glaring contradiction, even an absurdity. Now, I want to give you four ways in which that's going on. Number one, it's become the popular opinion that Christians should lay aside their doctrine and rally around a common confession of Jesus. There's only one problem. There are multiple Christs being preached in the world today, not only in so-called Christendom, but even within the realm of evangelicalism. And so, are we to preach a Christ that is so vague and so general that we literally fill the world with an undefined Christ and contradictory opinions with regard to his word? Absolutely not. Now, the second statement, and this may be the most absurd thing that was ever birthed in the mind of a man, it is this, we need to lay aside our doctrine and rally around the Great Commission. Now, here's what I want you to see. The Great Commission is a doctrinal or theological endeavor. To lay aside doctrine and theology to carry out a doctrinal and theological endeavor is suicide. It's absurd. You see, that's the problem. This is the problem today. And it's the same problem that's happened in every generation of the church, a depreciation of truth. But Christianity is a truth religion. And the Great Commission is about the proclamation of the truth. Another thing that I would like to say is it's a common thing that we should, we should reduce all our doctrinal statements down to only the essentials. You know, the phrase that is attributed to Augustine, although there's evidence that maybe he never said it, was in essentials unity. 
in matters doubtful, in matters doubtful liberty, and in all things charity. That's true, but there's some inherent dangers there. And what is it? Have you noticed that in every, in every generation, in every decade, especially the last few decades in evangelicalism, there's more and more doctrine being relegated to the small stuff category? And that doctrines that at one time were considered fundamentals of the evangelical faith are now considered not even worth talking about and especially arguing about. My dear friend, that's dangerous. It's very dangerous. Now, if you want to be an ivory tower theologian who just wants to sit there and pontificate and meditate, then you can have all kinds of undefined doctrine. If you want to be a seminary student just arguing in the student center, you can have all kinds of undefined doctrine. But when you go to plant a church and you're dealing with real people with real problems, defining the small stuff becomes very important. Now, another thing, and it's this, it's the common practice of missionary organizations to reduce their doctrinal statement down to the lowest common denominator so that they can bring in more candidates for the mission field and more supporters for those candidates. Now, in many cases, that is done by men with, with at least they're desiring to do something right. But it is a blatant surrender to pragmatism, and in the end, we lose our soul. We lose our soul. Now, I want to finish with this. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. From the Greek, idu, which communicates the idea of, of look, see, behold, take notice. It's as though Christ is looking at these men and saying, Look at me. Look at me. I am now going to give you the greatest of all encouragements. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Levertov said, it is the greatest conclusion that any book ever had. Now I want to finish with Calvin. By these words, as I have formerly suggested, Christ shows that in sending the apostles, he does not entirely resign his office as if he ceased to be the teacher of his church. For he sends away the apostles with this reservation, that they shall not bring forward their own inventions, but shall purely and faithfully deliver from hand to hand, as we say, what he has entrusted to them. That is the work of missions, to faithfully deliver to our hearers what has been entrusted to us. That's the work of missions. God bless. Paul, thank you. You've served us well this morning by giving us a, a biblically clear perspective on the Great Commission uh, and missions itself, and there's much for us to take home. Paul's agreed to just take a few minutes with us here at the end of this uh, seminar to talk about some practical issues in missions, particularly in cultivating a biblical strategy for your church. And I, I have a few questions for you, Paul. Uh, the first is this. Can you please explain the difference between cross-cultural missions and indigenous missions? It's something we're beginning to talk more about. Cross-cultural missions has to do with sending a man from one country and one culture to another country and culture. For example, an American being raised up by God to go preach the gospel in Russia. That would be cross-cultural missions. Indigenous missions is realizing that there are also qualified men in those other countries who were born there and um, who are worthy 
of being helped in the ministry. You alluded to some of the, uh, let's say, misdirected uh, efforts in cross-cultural missions today. Can you expand on that a little bit further? First of all, we always want to appreciate anyone who desires to, in the name of Christ, sacrifice something to do something of benefit to people. But here's what we have to understand. Doing what is right in our own eyes is so dangerous. We must define what a missionary is by the Scriptures. We must define what a missionary does. And, and I, I believe that the anthropologist, the sociologist, and the psychologist has taken over the work of the exegete and the theologian. Not only must our doctrine come from proper exegesis of the text, but our methodology. We were never given a right to go do things the way that we want to do them or to borrow from secular thought because it works. That's the great problem, the lack of belief in the sufficiency of Scripture. Absolutely agree with you. Based on your ministry experience in Peru, uh, the Lord certainly from the Scriptures gave you this conviction, but what you saw in practice and what you tried to encourage in Peru, could you just illustrate that for us? And then what led you to uh, really developing uh, your ministry, Heart Cry? Well, when I went to Peru, I was 26 years old. And as all of you who are in the ministry know, I was definitely on a learning curve. And I didn't graduate from, from a seminary where the things I now believe were taught. And so I do believe that more than anything in Peru was learning. And although churches were left, churches were helped, uh, we're still supporting men there. I can also look back and I can see quite a few mistakes that I made. And that's why the students that are here, you ought to praise God that you don't have to go out and reinvent the wheel. You can learn to do what's right so that when you get out there, you hit the ground running. The one thing that, that I think more than anything that I learned in Peru was that even though you have good men and even though you have good intentions, you must still lash yourself down to Scripture. Also, it's, it's, it's all of you, a lot of you probably look at what's happening here with this church and the missionary endeavor and and you want to do that in your own church. And I applaud you for that. But, but here's what I want you to see, and I learned this in Peru. What you're seeing right now is the result of decades of work by dedicated men. And I don't think anyone here, when they started, probably had an idea that they would end up here in this way, doing these things. And for missions, you must, and church planting, dedicate yourself to the hard work of studying the Scriptures, proclaiming the Scriptures, and trying to conform everything in your ministry, your churches, to the Scriptures. That's what I'd like to share. In working with national church leaders, particularly in Peru, I know that you've expanded around the world, uh, world through the ministry of Heart Cry. What is so effective, in your opinion, about focusing on equipping and training national church leaders? Well, here's, here's what we've learned. There are national leaders, they don't, you know, national men, they don't have to learn the language. They don't have to learn the culture. Uh, no one's going to come to their church because they're the rich American. 
It starts out from the very beginning uh, avoiding a lot of the problems that you have with cross-cultural missionaries. But now here's what you must understand. There are some places in the world where heart cry can do indigenous missions. But there are other places in the world that we cannot. This does not work everywhere. Now why? My dear friend Conrad Mbewe in, in Zambia, a man of integrity, great preacher of the word, the elders in the churches that are there with him. We can do indigenous missions with him. Why? Because we know his integrity, we know his theology, and we know all those men are going to be held accountable. But there are other areas in the world where that cannot be done. And that's why the, the mission ministry here of starting training centers is an absolute necessity. And one of the reasons why we kind of are following you guys around. And, um, and, and here's the thing. Unless you have these leaders on the field, trained, equipped, and dedicated, it's really hard to help the church overseas. It's going to take men who are trained here or other good seminaries and that go over and actually do the hard work of raising up leaders and then holding those men accountable. For example, in Samara, if, if the ministry in Samara called us tomorrow and said that they had three or five or whatever men to support. We wouldn't even send anybody over there to check on them because we've seen the leaders in Samara and there's no need. We just, yeah, let's do it. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that. And I, just to be clear, uh, what you're not saying and what we're not saying is there's not a place for American or, or uh, North American missionaries to be involved in the missionary enterprise. It's defining what is a biblical model for that and what the priority is. Is that correct? Yes, brother. What we need, we need men who, who embrace the weapons of our warfare. Men who see it as their task to study God's word in order to proclaim God's word through the pulpit, on the street, and in the counseling chair. Men who will raise up leaders with the exact same convictions. That's what is necessary. And, and it's not that we should have a moratorium on sending Americans or people from Western Europe. Not at all. But they must be biblically equipped. And they must really have these convictions. You know, if I talk to someone and I say, look, for example, if we send out someone from our church and we've known them, they're friends, we bring them in, they have to stay with our church for a, for a bit of time. Why? Because many of them have given this testimony. They say, when you said that missions was all about proclamation, intercessory prayer, sacrificial service and suffering, I agreed. But now that I've been in your church for a few months, I realized I didn't know what I was agreeing to. There's so much stuff that has to be cleaned away to get to the essentials of true ministry. We were talking yesterday just about the reality that we can be focused on the work of evangelism in missions, but in doing so, uh, the issue is what kinds of churches are we bringing those converts back to? And are they churches that are governed, first of all, by a pastor in a pulpit that speaks with clarity with regard to biblical convictions? And somehow we, we got the cart before the horse. Can you just comment on that maybe mistake that we make? Everywhere I go in the world, everywhere, I was just in Brazil, and countless individuals who are just Christ people. They're not pastors, they're not, they're, they're just, they've been converted. And it's just like a mighty chorus of all of them saying the same thing. There's no church in our area 
that believes anything of what you've been proclaiming or what we've heard from other teachers that you've recommended. We listen to Dr. MacArthur, we listen to these men and everything, but we have no place. And, and when we go to our pastors, they either become angry or they say they're doing the same thing when we know they're not. Brothers, the great need is the training of leaders. It's the great need. There is no greater need. So that churches that God's people can go to, and, and that's work, but it must be done. You look at an audience here of, uh, well, several thousand pastors and elders. What would you say to these men with regard to where their church should focus their missions effort? What, what's the opportunity that we're looking at together, Hearts Cry, mm -hmm. uh, the Masters Academy International? Uh, what would you say to them? I would say for, for just a moment, let's not talk about Heart Cry. We don't need to talk about Heart Cry. If you men are here, you, you don't need Heart Cry. If you men are here right now and you believe the things that are being, being taught in these, this pulpit, the things that, the convictions that are being stood for, then I would tell you to focus your missionary endeavor on what's going on here. Again, there's so much missionary activity going on and it's not biblical and it's not producing biblical churches. There are horrendous things going on in missions today, even by so-called conservative evangelicals. Do you believe that the primary thing that we must do is study God's word? to proclaim God's word, to live God's word, intercessory prayer, sacrificial service, suffering. Well, that's what the men are being taught. I'm not a flatterer and I, I'm, I'm not getting anything for being here. It's not why I'm here. I'm here because I know that through my own experience, there is a dearth of men that can be supported in this world. Now that's a shame. After all these years of missionary activity, there is a dearth of men theologically, with regard to integrity. And when I've talked to the men here, when I've gone to places where men are being trained, I'm telling you, if, if they tell me there's some men that need to be supported here, th then we'll do it. If we can, by God's grace. And we don't have to worry about it. Because I've seen, you know, there's a film that I keep telling him about, I want him to see, in which this samurai sword guy, he says, all my disciples that I teach, he only teaches one at a time for like 15 years or so. He says, all of them must be at least as good as me, but really they must be better. If not, in a few generations, my craft is lost. When I was in Samara, I, I, I couldn't, I'm sitting there preaching and I had students opening their Greek New Testaments. When I was in Samara, I had people who were genuinely concerned about expository preaching. And then I was blown away to know that the men were all trained in biblical counseling. And I mean real biblical counseling. Brothers, you're not going to find that in other parts of the world. So at HeartCry, we have a principle. We, we don't make our needs known. But I'm not talking about HeartCry today, and you don't need HeartCry. You don't need to support HeartCry. But if you really want to do missions... And you want to know that men are being trained and that they're being held accountable, then focus on this missionary enterprise of Masters International. Focus on it. I have, I have as much confidence as you can put in men. 
I have confidence in what I've seen. And again, I'm not a flatterer and I'm getting nothing for this. I saw this and I want it to happen because it's not about heart crying. It's not about Master's Academy. It's about the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Let all of us perish. Let our names be forgotten, but let the truth continue on. Roll on like a mighty sea. We also have attending our conference here over 500 international pastors. Uh, the very men that we're talking about, getting behind, supporting, equipping, and encouraging in their work. What would you say to them this morning? The men that have come from... Yes. Brothers, do not give in to the lie of pragmatism. Don't give in to the worldly, secular ideas that have invaded the church with regard to success. We have all the facilitators, movers and shakers, schemers and dreamers that we need on the mission field. Spend your mornings in intercessory prayer and laboring over the scriptures. Spend the rest of your time living it and making it known. The first time I ever came here, I remember Dr. MacArthur got up in, I was in the, it was in the chapel. I got to visit a chapel and he got up and he said, never forget men, never forget men. You do two things here. You learn how to study the Bible in order to proclaim the Bible. That's what we do here. And that's what I would tell you to do. I would beg you to do. There is a dearth of men of God. We're not businessmen. We're not schemers. We grab a hold of heaven. We pray, we proclaim. That's what you must be. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul, thank you for being with us today. Uh, we've been greatly affected, uh, greatly blessed, and encouraged to make sure that our mindset about missions is governed by the Word of God. That's the yes. authority. You made your point very clear. Okay. It has been convicting to us. Amen? All right. Amen. You've reached the end of this audio presentation. For more audio or for more information on the Shepherds Conference, please visit shepherdsconference.org.